Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Later on tonight, we'll hear why efforts to stop seabirds getting killed by fishing boats is a global effort. But first, concussion. Concussion is very much on Melanie Bussey's mind. Not because she's had a blow to the head, but because she's interested in sports injuries and the effects of concussion on, for instance, rugby players. There's a growing body of evidence that rugby players are at high risk of concussion and that repeated concussion has various negative effects on brain function. In the worst cases... Cumulative damage from a number of concussions can result in a condition known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. It leads to speech and memory problems and shares features with Alzheimer's disease. Melanie is director of the Motion Analysis Laboratory at the University of Otago. Her area of research is clinical biomechanics. And when I joined her and student Jaden Pinfold in the lab as they set up for an experiment they're using to test rugby players, I asked her to explain what biomechanics is. Biomechanics is a combination of physics, mechanical engineering, and anatomy, essentially, to study movement. Obviously, in physical education, we're interested in uh, sport, mostly, and sport-related movement. And for me, I'm a clinical biomechanist, so I'm interested in injury and pain and how it affects movement. Generally, I think if I, if I had an injury, it would stop me moving as freely as I might normally do. Yeah, definitely. My research interest actually is in how injury affects uh, movement patterns and how our movement system adapts to injury, and particularly chronic injury or recurrent injury patterns. Um, and so we're looking at mechanisms that may be related to the chronicity, so how long the injury or the pain lasts, and to recurrent patterns, so why some people have the same, will get the same injury multiple times. Jaden's study, for example, we look at recurrent concussion and what might be a mechanism for having that same injury multiple times. Now tell me a bit about concussion. It's been in the news quite a bit recently in relation to sport, and I'm thinking of things like American football, for instance. Yeah, American football definitely kicked off the concussion craze, Um, with their class action lawsuit a couple of years ago um, where the former players who had had suffered the symptoms of chronic repetitive concussion sued the the National League for their chronic long-term injury. And so the league has taken it very seriously and invested a lot of money and time into researching concussion and the the symptoms of chronic and recurrent concussions in that population. And they're, they're doing a lot to try to protect their athletes. 
But what it's done is it's sent shockwaves through the, the community, the sporting community, to try to, everyone now is looking at their sport. And obviously here we don't have American football, but we have rugby, which is also a contact sport and has a very high um, concussion risk for their athletes. And we have no idea what the long-term uh, consequences are for rugby players. We, ha we haven't done that long-term research yet, but we're certainly now doing a lot more work with those athletes to understand um, the mechanisms and risks in that population. We'll come back to concussion in a second. In the meantime, I'm curious about what Jaden is up to over here, so I might pop over and see what he's doing. So what's going on here? So I'm currently um, preparing Lorenz's skin for surface EMG. EMG is measuring the electrical impulse from a muscle, um, which tells us how active that muscle is. Um, and so we put electrodes on the skin to measure that electrical impulse. So, Lorenzo, you're our willing participant today. Yeah, I am indeed. This is a follow-on study from some others that we did in the last year. Um, we did a couple of pilot studies looking at the effect of recurrent concussion on head acceleration. So we know that the um, injury that we call concussion, occurs from strains in the brain due to the rotational acceleration of the head during impacts. And they know they've done studies, modeling studies on the brain to see how the brain's tissue changes shape during those impacts. And that's what causes the symptoms that we see, the neurological symptoms that we see that we call concussion. So fuzzy thinking and lack of coordination and those sorts of things that we see um, immediately following that kind of impact. So from the previous studies we did, we found that people who had recurrent concussions had higher head accelerations during rugby-related type impacts than those who had no history of concussion, um, which definitely tells us that something's changed neurologically to cause them to have less, potentially less control of their head during the impacts. So this study is a follow-on where we've kind of simplified everything down to just look at the neck muscles and how they're controlling the head during a smaller impact than what we would see in a rugby tackle, but a similar type of impact that we would see in a rugby tackle. Um, so we're trying to see whether people who have those recurrent histories have poor control, maybe, of those muscles, um, which might cause them to have less control of the head during those impacts. So it could be that having one bout of concussion means you're more prone to get another one because you've got less head control? Is that what you're thinking? That's exactly what we're thinking. And what we saw in the data, we've just, we're just writing this paper, so it's hot off the presses at the moment. What we saw in the data was that as you had more concussion history, so from zero to one, you had, there was an increase in head acceleration during impact. And then from one to two to three, there was an even more significant increase in rotation. And it was like almost a linear increase. So the more concussions you had, the higher head acceleration was during the impact. So there's definitely a relationship that we see anyway in our research that shows that, that there is likely a lower control. So we're carrying on with this project so that this one, like I said, we're isolating back down to those muscles to see whether or not that is the thing that's maybe causing the lack of control. So what muscles in particular are we talking about? What are these ones that are at the base of our neck? Oh, these are the muscles that every first-year anatomy student loves to hear about, actually. The one on the neck that you just see Jaden preparing underneath Lorenz's ear is called the sternocleidomastoid. Everyone loves to say that. It attaches at the mastoid process behind the ear, and then down on the clavicle and the sternum. So it's the sternocleidomastoid. 
Gotcha. And it's responsible for rotating the head. And if you contract it bilaterally on both sides, it stiffens the neck on the front. And then the, the back muscles on the back of the neck that we're looking at are the splenius capitis, which is a small muscle sort of at the base of the neck, at the base of the head, that helps control the neck rotation, posterior rotation. And then the upper trapezius muscle, which is in the shoulder, which also helps control, particularly if it's contracted bilaterally, stiffness around the neck. And so if you're going to have an impact, they've done these studies in sort of bigger impacts like car crashes and things. Um, these are the muscles that tend to sort of stiffen to control the head during sort of whiplash-type injuries. And it's the same mechanism in if you're hitting a rugby player as if you're hitting a car. So um, we're looking at those same muscles to see how they would be helping to control the head. So Jaden is now sticking on little electrodes. So there's going to be how many of those? Six? Yep. So there's one electrode per muscle, and we're looking at it at this, that muscle on each side of the head. So for the study, does it matter whether your participants have a history of concussion? Are you looking for people who have varied histories? We're, we, in this study, we are looking for a various history of concussion. So we want those who've had none and those who've had multiple. So we can look at how it would differ amongst those people. And we also track how long ago those concussions were. And our previous study was really interesting because we had some athletes who had a fair di- amount of time since their last concussion some one or two years, and they still had higher rotations even several years later. So the neurological effects, the cumulative neurological effects that we see seem to be more long-lasting than we would expect when the immediate symptoms are gone, usually within 7 to 10 days, 14 days usually at the latest outset. So there's definitely something happening underlying there that we don't quite understand yet. Am I allowed to ask what your concussion history is? Well, I've had no concussions, actually, yeah. Okay, so you should have good, solid neck muscles. Yeah, well, you'd hope so for a skinny guy like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've stuck all your electrodes on, Jaden. What are you about to attach now? Uh, this is just the box that sends the signal from the electrode to the computer. And so during the experiment, we're just interested in both the amplitude of the muscle activity and then the onset of that muscle activity. How big it is and how quickly it happens. Yeah, exactly. And I guess there's trials where the participant will have their eyes open and trials where the participant will have their eyes closed. So the device will come down and perturbate their body or make impact with their chest. And uh, we're interested in the muscle activity um, during that trial. Uh, When their eyes are open, they'll have uh, voluntary activation of their neck muscles. And so we expect the muscle activity to happen before the impact, whereas when their eyes are closed, they won't be anticipating the impact. So Uh, the muscle activity will occur after the impact. And um, this occurs through reflexive uh, muscle muscle activation patterns. So we're sort of just interested whether concussion history has an effect on the brain's processing or the reflexive uh, muscle activation. And what have you got there, Melanie? Uh, This is the impact sensor. So this is the sensor that they use in NFL football, in soccer, in, in rugby union and rugby league to measure head accelerations during practices and games. So we have the same technology we're using here, um, and it's, it just attaches to the mastoid process behind the ear, that bone on the skull behind the ear, and it will measure the rotational acceleration of the head during the impact so that we can see how well controlled it may or may not be. You're looking more and more like a cyborg there, Lorenzo. Yeah, I definitely feel it. My rotation's definitely impaired now as well. <laughs> kind of just keep my neck straight, me straight. 
So I'm currently just setting up the perturbation device. So it has a 1.5-metre uh, arm that sort of has a pivot point at one end, and then at the other end there's uh, two thrusters that are um, padded with high-density foam. So we have uh, 10% of the persistence body mass uh, loaded up on the device, and then it's pulled back 0.8 metres to a magnetic release. The participant sort of stands in front of the device, and the device is released, and it comes down, swings down, and uh, hits them in the chest. So the, the momentum of the, of the swing will be scaled to that person's size and mass, um, so it will be the same type of impact for every person. And how does this get recorded? Obviously, it's getting recorded on the sensors, Jaden. Are you also going to film it? Yeah, so we're filming it with a high-speed camera uh, that's recording at 2,000 hertz. Your normal standard video camera captures at 60 hertz, so this one is at 2,000. So we're capturing much more data at a much quicker rate. So we're more likely to catch that high acceleration of the head than we would with a, a 60 hertz camera. So it's a modern equivalent of a crash test dummy camera? Absolutely, yes. So you're being carefully lined up, Lorenzo, so you have to stand in a particular spot, in a particular stance? I am indeed. So feet apart. And where are you going to get hit? Whereabouts is the looks impact like going to be? it's going to hit me right on the pecs by the looks of it. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm ready to go. Yeah, we're all set up ready to go. Cool, it's going to come at you. Cool. So how was that? Oh, it was all right. I think it knocked off my feet a little bit there, but you can see it coming, so it's not much of a fright. So you had your eyes open for that Yeah, one. I had my eyes open for that one. Yeah, saw it coming, kind of tense, kind of prepared myself for it, and then when it hit, I was ready, I guess. But um, I guess we'll see when it closed my eyes, it'll be a bit of a shock, I imagine. So it was interesting, his head actually went quite a long way forward mm-hmm. when he was pushed yep. on the chest. So that's, a, that's um, exactly the kind of rotational acceleration that you see when you get um, like a tackle type to the body. That force of the body on the body actually causes an impulse to the head to rotate in the opposite direction, like whiplash in a car crash situation, um, and that's exactly the mechanism that we think causes a concussion. Is it just that rotational aspect of the, the movement that's the problem, or is it the, does the brain actually connect with the skull? I think there's still a lot we don't quite understand about it. There have been a lot of brain modeling studies where they've done finite element analyses of the tissue of the brain to see how it responds to linear and angular rotations. The brain tissue itself is a very complex tissue because unlike our muscles and and bones and joints, which are very linearly organized, so they're organized mostly in sort of an axial fashion. They run up and down for the most part to handle loads that run up and down. But our brain tissue is quite knotted and twisted and runs in lots of different directions. And so we know that most of the tissues of our body respond to loads in a very linear fashion because that's the way they're designed. And they respond to loads, you know, compressive loads and tensile loads that act along that axial pathway um, because that's the way they're designed. Whereas the brain, because it's such a complex design, it's very hard to understand exactly how it will respond to a load. The first studies that were done on brain tissue were done back in the 50s and 60s on monkeys, and they found that the magnitude of the acceleration and the duration of the acceleration definitely affected the brain tissue and created sort of injury to the brain. Um, So we know that definitely size and magnitude of impact is important, but more recent 
data has shown us that the linear acceleration doesn't cause as much deformation of the brain tissue as the rotational acceleration. So right now, the thinking is that rotational acceleration is actually more problematic for concussion-type injury mechanism than the linear um, acceleration. And there are, again, a lot of nuances about whether there are magnitudes of threshold that are worse or better, and whether at some magnitudes linear plays more of a part than rotational. Um, But definitely, for the most part, the kinds of rotation that we see in sport-related impacts, rotational is the one that causes more brain strain um, and likely the major mechanism for concussion symptoms. Now, Jaden, can you tell me what happened in terms of Lorenzo's muscles? So, Yeah, so here on the computer screen we have the muscle activity from uh, Lorenzo's muscles during that trial, uh, and you can sort of see that there's uh, pre-activation uh, before the device impacts his body. So here, because we had the eyes open and Lorenz could see and he had that visual feedback, he was able to prepare his muscles um, well before impact. One of the things we expect to see in some athletes who've had high concussion histories is perhaps that they're not as good at planning for that impact, and so they might have delayed muscle response when the visual information is available to them. But Lorenzo's is good and fast. He's sweet as. Good reflexes there, Lorenzo. Pretty happy with that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. stage two. Stage, stage two. two. Eyes closed, earmuffs on. So in this stage, we remove all visual and auditory information. So he's wearing a headset that uh, Jaden's going to play some music so that he cannot hear anything that's happening outside. Um, So he can't hear the mechanical release of the perturbation device. Um, And his eyes will be closed, so he won't receive any visual feedback as to when the device is moving toward him. And so what's your expectation that he might... Um, get jerked more and pushed further back? So we might see a larger rotation. Um, Likely that's going to be because his muscles won't have the time to pre-plan and prepare. So what we typically see are the muscles will be delayed in the response, and that's because we're now looking at pure reflex action. So now the muscles are going to activate due to the actual impact rather than preparing for the impact. And so that's a pure reflex response, which comes from a lower process in the brain further down into the spinal column. So Lorenz can't hear or see anything. He's waiting. <laughs> oh, he certainly got knocked back a bit more that time. <laughs> so you definitely didn't hear anything, you definitely didn't see I definitely see didn't hear or see. My eyes were like squinting at the thought of it coming. <laughs> um, that was definitely worse than the first time, yeah. I don't really like that anticipation that it's coming. At least in rugby you might actually know that it, the tackle was coming, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see my video. I feel like I'll be all over the show. I was pleased to see you had a mattress just in case you did top. Yeah, over. I think I nearly tripped over the mattress. <laughs> looking at what his so muscles looking at his did. muscle activity, you can see the white line. So there was absolutely no, no anticipation. No anticipation. And these bottom muscles reacted much more this time than they did last time. Yeah, and what happens if you can't prepare and plan for an oncoming perturbation or impact? Then the response is much greater in amplitude because our reflexes almost overreact to control the movement once it's already happened. So if we have time to plan, what happens, the, the response is lower because our body has time to sort of um, make online sort of corrections and changes as the impact is unfolding. So it can kind of stagger the response, if you will. But 
when we don't know that a perturbation is coming, it's much riskier. So often when athletes get tackled, they, they see it coming, they know it's going to happen, and they can prepare themselves for it. But very often as well, they don't. They're running along with the ball and have no idea that somebody's bearing down on them. Um, and those types of tackles typically are where we see you know, higher risk because they're unprepared for that kind of impact. Thanks, Melanie. Melanie Bussey runs the Motion Analysis Research Lab at the University of Otago. We also heard from student Jaden Pinfold and willing student volunteer Lorenz Kisling. Koto tato au horihori tene, he hotaka e panakite putayo, teitayo, mete kopapa o teora. I'm Alison Balance, and now the annual Bird of the Year competition kicks off on Monday, the 1st of October. That's next week. Now, if you've listened to the show for a long time, you'll know that I have a soft spot for seabirds. After all, New Zealand is the seabird capital of the world. And of the 13 previous winners of Bird of the Year, the only time a seabird, the fairy turn, took the title was the year that only seabirds were eligible to enter. So I'd love for a seabird to win Bird of the Year. And just like last year, I will be trying to make that happen. I'm teaming up with RNZ's business editor Giles Bickford again to campaign for Hoiho, the yellow-eyed penguin. Forest and Bird runs the Bird of the Year competition to highlight how threatened some of New Zealand's unique birds are. And seabirds are no exception. A third of our seabird species are seriously threatened, including Hoiho. So now I'm going to catch up with a couple of people who are year-round seabird campaigners. They're working hard to try and remove one of the big threats facing some of our seabirds, getting accidentally killed during commercial fishing operations. The most recent State of the Marine Environment report for New Zealand from 2016 is a stock take of how well we are doing at looking after our oceans. It says that in 2003, an estimated 9,000-plus seabirds died in New Zealand fisheries. In 2014, just over 5,000 seabirds were estimated to have died. The most commonly caught birds include albatrosses and petrels, some of which are highly threatened. New Zealand is trying to stop the accidental bycatch of seabirds in its EEZ, but Forest and Birds seabird conservation advocate Karen Baird says that the problem is actually a global one. As we know, we have a lot of seabirds breeding in New Zealand, uh, more species than anywhere else in the world, but once they finish breeding, most of them, especially the albatrosses and petrels, fly off to other parts of the Pacific to overwinter and often to molt. In particular, many of our albatrosses and petrels fly straight across eastwards towards South America. And the big attraction there, of course, is the Humboldt Current, which provides a huge amount of food for them. So tell me about the Humboldt Current. So the Humboldt Current is a, is a cold water current that, that flows up the coast of South America. So it's a cold current, which means it brings lots of nutrients and richness. Lots of lots of food. Of course, you, people will uh, recall the anchoveta fisheries in particular, these enormous fisheries of anchovies and pilchards. And so that's the sort of thing that the seabirds are after. So what kind of species are going across to South America from New Zealand? So there's a number of species, uh, key species I guess we would call them, um, Antipodean albatross, which we know of course breed on the Antipodes. Antipodean albatross uh, fly across to South America 
then flying up the coast of South America and then back across to New Zealand at lower latitudes in a nice little circuit, really. Another one that people will be familiar with is our lovely black petrel, of course, um, which flies across to Ecuador, actually, and Peru and spends the winter over there. And probably a lot of the juveniles might actually stay there rather than come back before they breed. So it's a really important link, really, between New Zealand and South America. So are there risks to those birds when they're in South American waters? Yes, indeed, and and not only just in South American waters, but in the high seas as well. So as they move out of New Zealand, where we know they're at risk from our own fisheries and other threats as well, once they leave New Zealand, they start to come into contact with, with other fisheries, other fishing fleets from other nations, distant water nations such as Asian fishing nations, Japan, Taiwan, China. And then, of course, once they get into Chile and Argentina they're at risk from fleets within those countries as well. Do we have any idea how big those risks actually are, i.e. do we know how many New Zealand seabirds might be getting caught in South America and international fisheries? I think in in South America there is some information. The Chilean governments uh, in particular have some quite high levels of observer coverage on some of their fleets, so we do know. uh, And indeed they are starting to implement mitigation measures which are effective in preventing bycatch. Uh, But there are other fleets that we don't know very much about and um, something that we uh, would really like to investigate further. And in terms of the high seas, virtually no information and very high risk as we know that many of those fleets are not implementing seabed mitigation measures. So tell me about the mitigation measures that we use here in New Zealand. Well there's a number of different fishing fleets but I guess the uh, one of the key ones particularly for albatrosses is the what we call the service longline fleet and they fish for primarily tunas and swordfish and that's the one where people will will know that when you set the line there will be a baited hook on the line and it's set out behind the vessel and that floats on the surface for a period of time and that provides a huge attraction to a seabird, particularly an albatross, um, which are great scavengers. So you can imagine that the most important thing is obviously to get that bait below the surface of water. Um, Albatrosses are not great divers, so if you can get that bait down really quickly... That's the primary objective. And then while you're sinking that bait, you need to protect that with a measure such as a bird-scaring line. So you need to have a bird-scaring line and a weight on your hook, preferably. And the other measure that you can use is is setting at night. Albatrosses in particular mainly forage during the day. So if if you set your lines at night, that provides protection as well. So... The Agreement for the Conservation of Albatrosses and Petrels, they do a lot of work around recognising best methods or what they call best practice for uh, mitigation for seabirds and they have identified that those three measures are the best practice for the surface longline fishery. In New Zealand, they're required to use a Tory line or a bird scaring line um, and one of the other measures. Thanks, Karen. Karen Baird is with Forest and Bird, which, along with Te Papa, is currently hosting a visiting Chilean seabird campaigner. He's working to make the other side of the Pacific Ocean safer for seabirds, including our Antipodean albatrosses. Their numbers have declined dramatically in the past decade. There are now only a quarter of the number of breeding females there were in 2004. 
We know that some birds are caught in New Zealand longline fisheries, and many more are dying in other fisheries across the Pacific, including in Chile. My name is Christian Suazo. I'm from Chile. I'm the coordinator of the Albatross Task Force team in Chile, and we are involved in the research and promotion of mitigation measures to face the global problem of seabird bycatching fisheries. So like New Zealand, you have a number of seabird species that you're dealing with? Yes, indeed. Mainly during the austral winter, we have a lot of visitors, uh, individuals of several species along the coast of Chile. So they are facing threats uh, in our waters, but also in the middle of the Pacific. So you've got a guide in front of you, and this identification guide is for people who are out on the boats to help them work out what birds they've got? Yeah. My main reason here is the updating process of a seabird by catch identification guide. This is coordinated and funded by the ACAP. ACAP is an agreement among uh, 13 parties. It's the agreement for the conservation for albatrosses and petrels, where uh, Chile and uh, New Zealand are also party. So my role is uh, meeting some experts here in New Zealand to know better about their species, some recommendations. Uh, Also, I'm collecting recommendations from people from different countries, mainly in the Pacific, Atlantic, and other waters. So how big an issue is seabird bycatch and fisheries in Chile? In Chile, we start several management actions. Indeed, uh, we are very uh, concerned about the issue. We are uh, actively working in the development of uh, severe bycatch mitigation measures. We are also collaborating with other countries to improve the collection of data, but also the development of novel measures to reduce these impacts. So what kind of measures, um, what kind of techniques are you asking fishers to use on their fishing boats so that they don't catch seabirds? We are promoting several measures for mainly for industrial vessels. We are uh, using bird carry lines. They are cheaper to use and they are demonstrated reductions in seabird by catch around 98%. 98%? Yeah. Um, in addition, we are working in novel mitigation measures, some uh, modifications of fishing nets. In the case of Persian fisheries, these fisheries in the Humboldt Current in Chile and Peru are targeting for anchovy and sardines. So some structural measures and, and cheaper measures can produce at least 98% in the case of shearwater by catch. Persian fishers catch large schools of fish, such as anchovies, by surrounding them with a net and closing it up like a purse. If the net is too baggy and lies on the sea surface, it can accidentally trap small seabirds, which are feeding on the same fish. But some simple changes to the net mean that not only are fewer seabirds now being caught, but the fish's job has become faster and easier. Christian is pleased about this win-win solution. For us, it's so much important, you know, to reduce bycatch, but also those measures, those modifications, it doesn't affect, you know, the fishing success of fishermen. It's a key aspect, you know, for compliance and the promotion of those measures. Thanks, Christian. That was Christian Suazo from the Albatross Task Force in Chile. The Bird of the Year competition kicks off on the 1st of October and runs for two weeks. You'll find a link to it on our webpage rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Now, if you like science podcasts, 
Well, our audio archive, which you can find by clicking the Episodes tab, has just turned 13. That means there are hundreds of stories in the Our Changing World back catalogue for your listening pleasure. And of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks for listening, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.